0: Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in a world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest.
1: Hey, it's Shane here, and reInvent 2018 is now run and done for the year, and today I'm back with episode 37 of Tech Chat. And fresh from AWS reInvent 2018, I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Dr. Pete, who was lucky enough to be there in person.
0: Hey, Shane, and hi, listeners. It's good to be back on the show and back in country after that 14 and a half hour flight back from LA to uh, Melbourne, Australia.
1: It's good to have you back, Pete. Now, Pete, there were many announcements at, at reInvent, far too many to cover in just one episode without glossing over them. And that really wouldn't be tech chat. So over the next few, to maybe even many episodes, we're going to jump in and dissect what these announcements were. Why should you care? And how these announcements can drive maturity within your organisation.
0: And you know what, Shane? I actually look at all of these announcements as you know, it's the Christmas before Christmas. Um, you know, except it comes in November.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and for our customers, I can just imagine what they're thinking, you know, like how can we use these to really advance our business?
0: And look, we had like 53,000 plus different customers attend reinvent. So, uh there's a little bit of every a little bit of something for everyone, I suspect. And I think uh, this month and maybe a few months coming forward for everybody is going to be time well spent uh, ready reading for the documentation and perhaps playing with some of the services that are out there, which we're going to cover in the show, aren't we?
1: So, look, I'm at a loss on where to start, so let's carve up these announcements into some broad brushstrokes. And this episode, we're going to cover some of the meaty compute announcements, uh, more so around compute networking and storage, and we'll leave the more application-focused sessions for a future episode.
0: Indeed, indeed. But Shane, as always, we start the show talking about the ever-expanding AWS global footprint, uh, and we've got a new announcement of a brand-new region that just came online.
1: We do. So look, I'm not going to spend too much time on the news today, as really the news is reInvent, but our regions and points of presence continue to grow to 20 and 160 respectively. So yes, in post-ReInvent news, we launched another region in Stockholm, Sweden. That's region 20, right? That's uh, Yeah, that's 20 regions. And I think that has a really nice ring to it, don't you think, Pete?
0: It totally does, you know, and I can't, you know, I keep pinching myself every time I see the stats updated, you almost blink and uh, uh, we've expanded somewhere else and we've got a few more to come as well, but uh, we have, we don't have time for those today. Um, I think we should start jumping into the awesome announcements, uh, in particular, Shane, um, around some, you know, hardware and stuff. I think we should. Let's do it. So I had a rumor that when you were young, a young man, and I think you wasn't well, not a rumor anymore because I think you talked about it on the show a few, a few episodes. But you brought an eighty-eighty-six for show and tell at school. Is that the case? Yeah,
1: I actually brought in the actual dip chip, not like the box, but you know the dip chip that's in the socket on the motherboard. And you know that is true, Pete. I've been dabbling with computers for almost thirty years now, and. Back when you could easily let the smoke out if you didn't have you know that dip switch or jumper set correctly. And you know what, letting
0: out the smoke, uh, I think shows some of, some of our listeners how old we are, because uh, that used to be a old joke with many of the uh, engineers and uh, electrical uh, and engineering guys uh, talking about digital. Uh, there was this this idea of a smoke sitting inside the silicon, and if you got the jumper wrong or you wired up the wrong way, the smoke would be out.
1: Yeah, look, and I think I've learned the hard way a few times. But via those uh, failures, you know, there's always a silver lining there. In the past, you know, I've made my own SCSI Terminators and have always been passionate about hardware. And one of the things I've always raged and argued with another, uh, another longtime friend is that discussion between CISC versus RISC. And he was always arguing why his consoles were always better than the x86 CPUs I had of the time. And they
0: were pretty awesome. In fact, I used to be a game developer many, many, many moons ago. And uh, yeah, that was a great conversation because uh, the consoles absolutely, you know, um, pardon the phrase, smoked the uh, the PCs because uh, they just had dedicated hardware. They had dedicated sound, video chips, uh, pretty much what we're kind of now seeing in a special dedicated GPUs and um, dedicated hardware that's uh, been available as plug-in boards or nowadays uh, part of the motherboards.
1: Yeah, that's right. And look, there are quite a few differences in processor design here. So, you know, whilst your computers are running an x86 CISC-based CPU, x86 in some ways hasn't been that successful in the mobile portable era. And that's because, you know, these processors have a RISC architecture, which typically requires fewer transistors than those with complex instruction set computing or CISC, which reduces power consumption and heat dissipation. So I guess you probably, you know, I've just mentioned CISC and RISC here. Pete, do you want to kind of like demystify for our listeners what the main differences between those two different processor architecture types are?
0: Sure. And look, so I like to think of CISC as the the complex. I think of it as complex instruction sets, which are essentially lots of different registers, lots of different, uh, if you you ever coded in assembler, you may recall the idea of mnemonics. Uh, so there are lots of different instructions, lots of different comp- uh, permutations of uh, assembly language instructions. Uh, whereas in the RISC infrastructure, there are fewer registers. Uh, there's the actual the way that things are pipelined in terms of uh, information flow. Uh, they're far far simpler. So uh, by having simpler, uh, you know, reduced instruction sets fundamentally, you can actually be more really optimized around how fast things can be processed. So the the vast difference between the um, CISC and RISC is really the number of instruction and how complex the programs actually can be. Um, And uh, when you wind the clock back in some cases, uh, you may remember the power PC generation a little while back. um, And those things were looking really, really promising. Um, unfortunately they did not quite make it. So uh, over the years, uh, risk instructions like the ARM processors, for example, have become the go-to hardware due to low power consumption uh, for mobile and edge devices.
1: You know, I often hear anecdotally risk-based architectures, you know, like the Power PC yep. you just mentioned there, and I think even Sony's cell architecture mm-hmm. can be quite difficult to program for.
0: It is, but look, if you've got a high-level programming language like C or, you know, we keep going up the stack, Um, all that stuff gets handled by the the actual compiler anyway. So uh, it's becoming much, much easier to actually be able to target your application across different processor architectures, right? And also with Linux being ported across different uh, CPU architectures and hardware types, um, it's even easier to actually move your code between platforms.
1: Absolutely, Pete. So look, one of the, uh, I guess, characteristics of CISC versus RISC is CISC, typically have larger dyes they've got more transistors which translates into more power consumption and greater heat dissipation and in today's world you know these characteristics aren't that desirable for data centers where real estate can be at a premium and you know systems are always trying to shrink to become a lower tdp that is the thermal design power so i'm not sure i
0: you could explain to some of the some of our listeners because TDP is a major major term often used in data center designs and things.
1: Absolutely, um, and I think even processors. You know, if you go and have a look at a X eighty uh, six processor, they will often list the TDP for that given processor. So I'm not sure if you in the past had like a Pentium three, Pentium four. I think it was like ninety nanometer fabs back then. I had one, and I had a few of them actually. And I always had the side of my case off because those things had like a TDP of 115 to 130 watts. They are like a heater in your house.
0: Oh, yeah. And also, if you don't put the heat sink on some of those uh, those puppies, um, they will also burn out. So I remember actually burning through a couple of processes uh, when I used to assemble my PCs over, over the years where um, if you didn't put the jumper in and didn't turn the thing off fast enough, um, you could actually quite quickly fry the CPU.
1: I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> and you know... Here's an interesting story. You know, in a past life, I owned quite a considerable amount of hardware and I was in a data center, Colo, at that stage and had purchased a 42 RU rack of rackable systems. So one RU back-to-back, half-depth servers, so total of 84, Uh Um, dual core, sorry, dual socket AMD Opterons at the time. And because this rack consumed so much current, I needed to procure and purchase but not be able to use the adjacent rack simply because my power consumption was not, was too large for the amount of cooling that this data center co-location had been spe- um, designed for. Yeah,
0: and look, many DCs were designed in different ways for um, the intake and outtake of, of, um, of hot air. You had the hot-cold model, for example, where you know alternating um, aisles would actually either push or you know, suck the air through. Uh, and often the fans of uh, of those blades or whatever the hardware you may have had in your rack uh, will be pushing the hotter in a certain direction. So, yeah, DCs were designed in certain ways. You had to stack your stuff in a particular configuration. It was just hard work, Shane.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah, just thinking totally about nice.
0: it now. I feel, I feel tired already.
1: I remember those uh, data center days wearing my big earmuffs and. Just tuning out.
0: Oh, yes. You can go deaf. I still have to have my tenters in my ears due to the fans uh, ringing in, at the, uh, in the DCs. So, Shane, why are we talking about processor design today?
1: I know. We digress. All right. So, we are talking about processor design because one of the announcements made at AWS reInvent by Pete DeSantis really marks the era where I personally think risk and ARM will come mainstream. So, in 2015, we acquired Annapurna Labs and after much tooling a toiling, I should say. And tooling. You
0: got to and tooling, and, yep. You got to and both. Do that sort of stuff, yep.
1: We announced the AWS Graviton processor, and with that, a new family of EC2. So say hello to the A series. The A1 and particular the one, right? The A1. So these are built around ARM cores, making extensive use of custom built silicon. The A1 instances are optimized for performance and cost, and they're a great fit for scale out workloads when you can share the load across a group of you know smaller instances. So, you know, things like containerized microservices, web servers, development servers, caching fleets, et cetera.
0: That's pretty cool because you can now port your applications um, over to the ARM-based A1 instances and uh, get up to a 45% uh, price reduction at the same time, which is uh, without losing any performance.
1: Without losing any performance. And, you know, you just mentioned you can port your applications across. You know, we've been living with ARM-based Um, Linux distributions for quite a bit of time now. You know, in 2012, Raspberry Pi, the first Raspberry Pi launched, and there are many applications today that have been ported across. And that heavy lifting that has been done, you know, can be leveraged when running these A1 instances. You could simply just issue an apt-get install LAMP server, and, you know, you would have PHP, MySQL, Apache be installed just like that.
0: Yeah, it just works, right? And that's the beauty of it. So uh, if you've got uh, any specific sort of x86 dependencies, um, then that's obviously a recompile. Uh, but the beauty of, of this is that you can just take many of your applications, uh, many of the tools, especially the Linux tools are already there. And if not, like, like you said, you can just do an app get and install your favorite tools. Now, you had to play with um, the actual A1 instance of Shen, and you even, even had a lookup uh, of the CPU IDs.
1: I did. So I was having a look at the proc CPU info on an A1 instance. So you get a CPU ID number of xdo 8 which, you know, if you put that into your favorite search engine, it suggests our Gravitons are based on the ARM Cortex-A72 CPU architecture. And a fun fact on this, Pete, is in its native form. So our, um, our Graviton mm-hmm. has up to 16 cores, but in its quad core native format, it consumes a humongous Seven watts, wow! Which is a far cry from you know the Intel X eighty six of the era.
0: You know, In that kind of when I think about it now, it's almost like when everyone's moving now to the um, LED lighting, right? You can get the same amount of uh, lumens out of the new LEDs as you know compared to the uh, the older bulbs, uh, at a much much lower power consumption. There you go. How's that for analogy? It's yeah, exactly. But you know what, Shane? That's not it. There's more, right? We've also announced the inferential chip. Which is going to become available in late 2019, um, and what it's going to do, it's actually a uh, it's designed for machine learning, so it's it's a chip designed purely for that. It delivers high performance at a really low cost, uh, and Inferentia will really support all of the um, ML frameworks like TensorFlow, Apache MXNet, and PyTorch, uh, and as well as many of your other deep learning frameworks that you may already be using, um, as well as it actually will support the ONNX format, which is um, Uh, quite a a flexible way of uh, distributing your MX models. Um, So the beauty of this is that um, you can start to use Inferentia as part of your inferences. So if you want to um, uh, be able to, you know, uh, build your models and then uh, access those, normally you would have been using GPUs perhaps uh, to train your um, uh, machine learning models. Uh, You can do this with uh, Inferentia as well as use Inferentia for um, the actual execution and actual predictions of the models. Um, so the cool thing also is we made another announcement at reInvent around what we call the Amazon Elastic interface, which allows um, developers to actually reduce cost by up to 75% by also attaching a GPU to an Amazon EC2 instance. So this is separate to the inferential chip, but this is actually allowing you to attach a GPU. So in scenarios where you actually only want to temporarily attach a GPU to an instance, uh, you can actually do so, which is pretty impressive. It's-
1: it's kind of like, I guess, attaching an EBS volume or an ENI, which is great because you don't have to have that one-to-one mapping now. Or, or
0: plugging that uh, <laughs> temporary light, as I was just talking about before, that little LED into your instance uh, and actually getting access to a GPU for a fraction of the cost. Very, very fun.
1: Cool. Very, very cool. All right. So AWS provides compute You know many instance types, including the A family, which we just learned about developers you know they can package their code as serverless containers they can leverage fargate if they don't want to have to manage containers or maybe even serverless functions with lambda and for customers who have made the jump to serverless they tell us that they love the low operational cost the low sorry the low operational overhead of serverless and really we believe it will continue to play a pivotal role in future computing totally but as customers increasingly adopt serverless we realized that existing virtualization technologies were not developed to optimize for you know this event driven sometimes short lived nature of these kind of workloads you have to remember you know a lot of these virtualization technologies were developed in the 90s mm. you know with the needs of serverless weren't really thought about Heavy. so we saw a need to build a virtualization technology specifically designed for serverless computing and we wanted something that could give us the hardware virtualization based security boundaries of virtual machines that people love whilst maintaining the smaller package and agility of containers and functions. That is the best of both worlds, Pete. Is it an oxymoron, I ask?
0: Well, it's a mouthful, (laughs) but I think it's actually a firecracker, Shane. And that leads me to the actual announcement that, again, for those of you who are tuning in uh, to Peter DeSantis' Monday Night Live, um, he actually talked about Uh, Firecracker. So this Firecracker announcement from us is really, we've open sourced a a virtual machine model around the uh, KVM, so the Linux kernel based virtual machine, Uh, we call it Firecracker, and it allows you to actually spin up really small, really secure and do this really fast micro virtual machine that have a very low overhead chain. And the beauty of this is um, if you've ever played with uh, trying to do this yourself, um, quite often you have to go into the Linux kernel, uh, fiddle with, you know, up to probably about a thousand different levers and switches and then recompile it to make sure that you've got all the bits turned on to support things like like C groups and virtualization for the IO blocks and so forth. Um, All that stuff's been done for you. Um, And we've open sourced it, which is really cool because you can now spin up your own virtual machines and containers and essentially uh, your own little Lambda functions uh, on something as small as your laptop.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I was looking at the documentation of this on GitHub. And one of the things that really stood out to me is the minimalistic design. It's kind of like everything that's not required to be secure or performant has been stripped out. And one of those cool little features is it has a one button keyboard. Which is a reset yes. pin. Everything else has been dropped.
0: How cool is that? Talk about you know the most minimalistic, just turn on and turn off button, right? I mean, doesn't get any better than that.
1: No, and I think this just translates into speed. I heard a rumor, Pete, that these firecrackers are blindingly fast. You know, only taking I think
0: seconds to boot a VM. Not even seconds, Shane. That we can actually boot. One of those micro VMs, right, inside 125 milliseconds, right? You had it right, 125 milliseconds. Wow! So that's that's rapid. So if you want to do multiple um, VM bootups, if you're uh, trying to make sure that you're getting, uh, you know, a fast start for your little for your transient workload, uh, this is the way you do it. You know, so grabbing Firecracker, um, you know, installing on your machine, um, you know, it's it's a lightweight virtualization technology, literally designed for the modern age.
1: Yeah, so, you know, you could build you could build that Alpine Linux virtual machine, you know. So, those VMs are about 5 meg in size. Spin that up in 125 milliseconds. That is amazing.
0: Yeah, so the 5 meg is actually the overhead. So, whatever the size of your um, micro VM, you just add 5 megs on top of that and that is the actual overhead. So, it's pretty impressive because uh, it gives you that very much lightweight, fast, but also secure way of potentially oversubscribing your your, your hardware and your infrastructure. So, um it's pretty cool because you can turn things on and off um, and only turn them on for the duration that they have to execute.
1: Yeah, so just to be clear, five meg of memory per micro VM that you consume, but you know, you could run those Alpine Linux virtual machines as an example, which are only like five meg in size and they can be spun up really, really, really quickly. Yes,
0: I'm getting the sense that we're talking about they're very micro small these days. Now, so Shane, can we run these um,
1: on normal EC2 instances? We cannot. So. Firecracker runs on Intel processors today with support for AMD and ARM coming in 2019. But you need to use, if you are going to use EC2, you need to use a metal instance, so bare metal. You can also run this on your on-premises environments, you know, even a developer laptop.
0: Yes, it's it's a great story actually because you can essentially take this and uh, the backstory is we've actually been using this ourselves internally for quite a while. So this has been battle tested. Um, So if you do actually um, want, you can actually take this off cloud and... uh, you know, like i said do it run on your laptop or inside your own data center um, and if you actually want to get your hands on the git hub repo go check out github.com firecracker dash microvm um, firecracker you can get the get the binaries or actually get the actual source and recompile it yourself
1: yeah so you know when you say we've been using it ourselves internally for some time customers hopefully may have heard of a service called aws lambda so AWS Lambda uses Firecracker as a foundation for provisioning and running sandboxes um, upon you know, in which we execute customer's code. Yes. So
0: for those of you who are familiar with serverless, well, guess what? We're giving away now the bits of infrastructure that actually we've been using for quite a while. Um, and we're making it available to everyone. And by the way, speaking of open sourcing things, if you go to opensource.amazon.com, you'll actually find a landing page that shows many of our open source projects that we've actually been releasing for quite some time. So uh, this is just yet another thing we're releasing to the broader community and uh, yeah, sharing our lessons learned with a wider audience. And by the way, um, if you think it's awesome, go contribute um, you know, and, and help uh, you know, the entire community actually keep building on top of this uh, really flexible modern day virtualization platform.
1: Awesome. Yeah, modern day virtualization platform. That's probably the best way to sum that up. Yes. So Shane, moving, so Pete.
0: moving from you know the low level plumbing into maybe horizontal slightly higher up the stack. Um, there's been also another announcement um, recently uh, and reinvent. And uh, you know when you when I think of that, it kind of brings me back to uh, the release of the Amazon Elastic File system. Um, can you tell us a little bit
1: about what this FSX thing is? This FSX thing is a new file system. All right, so a year ago or so ago, you know we launched Amazon Elastic File System, which provides you know simple scalable elastic file systems for Linux-based workloads for use with the AWS cloud services and even on-premise resources. But, you know, there was a problem almost as soon as it was launched, customers had started to ask, you know, when will EFS support my other workloads and the two common workloads that customers were asking us, um, you know, I'll say continuously, but quite frequently was Windows and HPC which both have, you know, unique requirements that EFS couldn't serve.
0: Totally. And you know what, Shane, this is another example of what happens with us when we um, release a service. At the moment we release something, and customers are great, this is awesome, but can you also add this and that and something else? Uh, and that's how we basically define much of our roadmaps up to 95% of every service's roadmap comes back from customer feedback. So we took this feedback on board, and what did
1: we do? We created a new service called Amazon FSX or File System X. So... Amazon FSX provides fully managed third-party file systems. Amazon FSX provides you with native compatibility of third-party file systems with feature sets for workloads such as Windows-based storage and HPC.
0: That's an important point, by the way, because uh, you know file systems often go hand in hand with the actual workload and the actual application format as well. So yes, yeah, certainly HPC uh, has its own specific um, requirements for being able to cope with multiple you know client machines connecting to the, to the file system and having it distributed, as well as Windows. Windows has got its own specific requirements. If you if you play with Windows file systems, uh, you know NTFS and you know have, have they've got a lot of a truckload of features and deep in the plumbing like alternate file streams. Uh, um, they have uh, SIDs, or security IDs, uh, unique IDs. Um, yeah, lots of specifics um, that are perhaps tied to the OS or the actual uh, nature of the actual workload.
1: Yeah, look, I think I've probably got in my laptop, in my archives here, probably many VB scripts that I've written that manipulate NTFS permissions. So absolutely, Pete. And I think you know if you're writing that VB, that C-sharp. Or PowerShell. Or PowerShell, you know, you may need to manipulate and make decisions based on NTFS permissions.
0: Yeah, lots of, lots of archiving tools, use permissions, look at all sorts flags, which are in alternate file streams. There's a lot of cool, interesting things that can be done uh, uh, deep in the plumbing of those things.
1: All right. Yeah, that's true. So look, number one on the list and what customers have been asking for some time is that native Windows file system, so NTFS. And that's because, you know, certain workloads require and can utilize this shared block-based storage. And some common use cases might be a file witness server for a Microsoft cluster, you know, know, being able to figure out which is a primary, which is a secondary in terms of voting. It could be you could have a share home directory for your IS instances, or it could even be a home directory on a file server. And we say, sorry, file servers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, multiple servers here because you want them to be highly available.
0: Totally. So what kind of performance can I expect? And, you know, what's it it compatible with? if I take a... In a Windows box, uh, you know, what's the SMB protocol that, that are supported?
1: All right. So under the hood, we're supporting SMB two all the way through to three point one. So that means Windows seven all the way Windows seven two thousand eight R two on the server side, all the way through to the newer versions of Windows as well as clients. You know, using Samba. In terms of performance, Pete mm-hmm. FSX provides you know really fast performance up to two gigabytes per second per file stream and hundreds of thousands of IOPS and a consistent sub-millisecond latency.
0: That's pretty impressive. Yeah, so, and and in terms of um, AD, it supports AD and things like distributed file system, DFS?
1: It absolutely does. Just on the performance front, something that I think is worth mentioning here, you know, in order to provide, I guess, the right performance for your workload, you can choose a throughput level that is independent of the file system size. That's
0: pretty cool. Okay, so how do I set it up? It's not
1: too bad. So how do you set it up? You know, it's pretty straightforward. Obviously, you can do this via an SDK or CLI call. But if you were to log into the console, all you need to do is specify the file system name, the size, the throughput capacity, and those two, the size and throughput capacity, are the two dimensions in which price is calculated upon. Specify the VPC, AZ, and subnets to which you want the endpoints placed in. Obviously, you want a highly available architecture. So if you're leveraging multi-AZ, you want to be placing these endpoints in subnets that are in multiple availability zones.
0: And what about security? And
1: on the security front, remember, you know, this is SMB. So your security group needs to allow 135, 445 and 5555, so 55s, so that your clients can connect.
0: <laughs> Good old uh, port opening on uh, security groups, huh?
1: Absolutely, Pete. So Sean, but- if I want to use this, where can I get my hands on um, on this actual FSX for Windows? All right. So today it's available in U.S. East, North Virginia, U.S. East, Ohio, U.S. West, Oregon, and Europe Island regions, and other regions will come in the coming months. And just remember, pricing is based on the amount of storage and throughput you configure. And something that definitely needs to be mentioned here is you need to specify an AD directory. And the AD directory that is tied to this FSX for Windows file system Mm -hmm. must be a managed Microsoft AD. So if you want to be able to leverage your own active directory you can just establish a one-way or two-way trust between your managed ad and your own and this will allow you to authorize your domain users to authenticate against this file system
0: okay and do we support kms
1: you'll be able to leverage your kms key with fsx for windows um nice very very nice yeah for data encryption and once you've done all this right and you, you know you've created this file system you're going to receive some endpoints they'll be placed in the subnets and you can just use these endpoints to connect from your clients. You know that could be I'm going to go map a drive from an EC2 instance, maybe you know even via my computer. You might use the net use, or you know if you're up using modern tooling, you might use a PowerShell commandlet. You know new hyphen ps drive.
0: Right, and you and you also get these endpoints as fully qualified domain names, right? As the, for the endpoints, you do,
1: yeah. So you know you can actually access them from on premises systems as well.
0: Okay, so if I got direct connect. I can certainly uh, connect my and have my hybrid cloud talking to my uh, new file system
1: cool you can yeah um you know and to ensure the data is not only highly available but you can it's backed up you can leverage VSS so you know that's a volume shadow shadow copy service to ensure backups that are taken are crash consistent and then they're stored on Amazon s3 to be cost effective
0: right very very cool okay so that's the first
1: announcement the other one is I um, ran another file system isn't it it is called Lustre. And look, Pete, I'll be honest here. I've played with InfiniBand and FCOE and iSCSI and Fibre Channel. I'm trying to think of others. I've played with most sort of file system, mm-hmm. I.O. subsystems. But Lustre is something I haven't played with in the past. Um, are you able to give our listeners a... Luster overview? Yes,
0: I certainly can. So let me demystify Luster for you. So Amazon FSX for Luster is, uh, like everything else, a fully managed file system, uh, but in this case, it's specially optimized for compute-intensive workload, chain. So we're talking about high-performance computing, machine learning, um, media data processing workflows, um, and a whole raft of other sort of high-end uh, data sort of manipulation um, applications. Um, so you can launch uh, Luster uh, for massive data sets up to hundreds of gigabytes uh, in size, and also um, the file system scales uh, to millions of IOPS um, with a sub-millisecond latency. So Luster isn't really designed for your lamp stack chain.
1: Damn! All right, <laughs> so don't use Luster for that. Not quite. Not quite. Probably EFS or you know, or, or the Windows file system, in fact. So basically, you know, yeah. Just on that look, I think managing the infrastructure required to support you know hundreds of gigabytes per second, millions of IOPS. That stuff is not tri- trivial. And I think that's really where the value prop of Lustre is. Absolutely. So, look, so um, in a
0: nutshell, Lustre is a file system that um, you also don't want to leave running because, I mean, setting up uh, and, and having it idle, I mean, setting up a very high end um, file system um, can be expensive. It does require a fair bit of instrumentation and setup. Um, so, the idea is you set up Lustre, um, you configure it for your use. Um, and then uh, the coolest thing about Lustre also is that you can back it against S3. So what it will do is it'll actually copy data uh, to and from S3, uh, so that you can actually access it via the Luster file system, and then you run your workload and your I/O intensive applications uh, over Luster, uh, and then the results are written back to the S3 file in, in, into S3 via the Luster FS.
1: Great, that's really good. All right, some things the to course. note about. Sorry, Pete. What was that? I was to say, it's also
0: performant, right? It's, uh, you know, what it can do is it provides two hundred megabytes. Right? You heard me right, two hundred megabytes per second of baseline throughput per terabyte of storage provision. So as you as your file system scales, the um, throughput can scale up to you know gigabytes per second, uh, depending on what you're trying to do, which is uh, very very impressive. You can have you know tens of thousands of nodes actually connecting to the actual file system.
1: Yeah, and that's a lot of nodes. So just to you know hone in on that. So if you need gigabytes of second of throughput, even if you've got a small data set, you may need to provision enough terabytes so that FSX for Lustre scales your IO accordingly. So Shane, um, I think we have time for one more
0: announcement, I suspect.
1: I think we do, Pete. And what do you have in your announcement bag for us today? Look, the
0: bag is pretty big. It's, a, it's like I said, this is like Christmas in November. Um, but I do have one. That's Give it a, a shake. That's a, that's a really good. One. So let me let me shake it, shake it for you guys. Um, so this is a really interesting one, and it's very important because many organizations rely on Secure File Transfer Protocol, uh, which is a long-established, you know, way of getting files from place to place. Um, and you know, the internet runs, you know, on many um, old protocols like you know, SFTP. So, um, you know, I have an announcement and that's around called, it's called AWS Transfer for SFTP, which is a fully managed, highly highly available, uh, secure FTP
1: as a service, Shane. Woohoo! And I'm going to give that <laughs> a woohoo because that is awesome. You know, yeah. it is from someone who's been using SFTP for a very long time, not having to set up FileZilla servers or um, you know, SSH. that is just great. I'm yeah, really happy for our customers for this.
0: Yeah, the nice thing about it is simply create, you know, there's the server, right, with the user accounts and, uh, and associate and get this, associate the S3 bucket one or more buckets with it. And uh, you have fine controls over those identity permission and keys. Um, and you can start transferring uh, files back and forth. Uh, the nice thing about it is you can also tie it into via identity and access management into things like Active Directory or LDAP. Uh, to give you that fine grained controls. And what's also cool about this is that um, in many cases, uh, you don't actually have to go back and disrupt um, the people that are already FTPing stuff into your system because uh, I've had customers who've got hundreds if not thousands of retail stores, and they rely on SFTP to transfer files like stock levels and sale inventories back and forth from a central branch office um, to uh, the remote branch offices. Um, and uh, you know, in many cases, uh, many of those customers actually rely on mainframes um, that have been around for many, many years, um, because this protocol has been around for quite a while. Um, and the beauty is, all you got to do is don't just change the um, uh, change nothing uh, other than you know create the AWS transfer for SFTP inside AWS.
1: Yeah, because you can move your existing DNS name and even those SSH public keys that were used into AWS transfer for SFTP.
0: Absolutely. And the other side benefit of that, chain is that you can, because this because those objects get brought and dropped into the S3 bucket, you can have Lambda do your post-processing on the uploaded information into those buckets, which also simplifies. In many cases, a lot of our customers have been using batch jobs and watching folders as for new files that have just been dropped via the FTP server. Uh, you can now do all this servicely. And look, we all know that uh, batch jobs... Uh, should always run. The answer is they don't. They necessarily may not, uh, but certainly, yeah, having those tied back into a Lambda function that can do some post processing for you uh, certainly is going to you know, reduce and eliminate much of that heavy lifting. And uh, because you can actually you know do whatever you want in a Lambda function, we give you more fu- more flexibility.
1: Yeah, so you don't need to have that cron job or enterprise scur- scheduler. You know, you could even maybe leverage AWS Step Functions and you know do your orchestration that way. It is. Ooh, it's a really nice. awesome point that you've just mentioned there.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. You can do some really clever stuff. So Shane, look at the time. We are, as always, out of time. So uh, let's do a quick recap of what we covered today.
1: For sure. All right. So hopefully that gave you a taste of some of the major announcements at reInvent and we'll follow up in the coming weeks with some more reInvent-orientated episodes. But to recap what we spoke about today, you know, Arm has really come of age with the EC2 A1 inst- instances sporting the risk Arm-based Amazon Graviton processor. Pete, you introduced us to a firecracker of a platform. Oh, yeah. Firecracker, which uh, gives customers the hardware virtualization-based security boundaries of VMs whilst maintaining the smaller package and agility that containers and functions give us. We also then introduced two new managed file systems, FSX for Windows and FSX for Lustre. And lastly, Pete, we briefly touched on the new AWS Transfer for SFTP. Wow, what a show. All right. Thanks, Pete, for your time today. And as always, we love to hear your feedback. So please contact us on AWS chat at amazon.com. And until next time, keep building.
0: Bye for now, guys. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.